Coming up on this week's episode of Check Your Balances, we answer listener questions about everything from 529 and ABLE accounts, credit reports, and fully paid securities lending. If that doesn't sound exciting, I don't know what does. Stick around. That's coming up next. Check Your Balances is a show produced and owned by Craftwork Capital. The views expressed by the hosts and their guests are personal opinions and should not be considered personal financial advice or the opinion of Craftwork Capital. All investments have risk and may lose money. Consult with your financial advisor, tax preparer, or attorney prior to implementing anything discussed. And please do not use this show as the sole basis for financial decisions. Welcome back to another week of Check Your Balances. I am Ross Anderson, joined as always by my friend and co-host, Dan Maseka. Dan, Happy New Year, buddy. Thanks, Ross. Happy New Year to you. It is 2022. It feels good to be saying that. I know for me, just kind of turning the the page on 2021 feels like it's been productive. That's just, you know, one more day. But uh, I, I feel good that we're talking about a new year right now. And to quote Taylor Swift, I don't know about you, but I'm feeling 22. Oh, my gosh. You worked a Taylor Swift reference into our first show of the new year. Had to get us off on the right start, Ross. I, I, can't, I can't start a new year without a Taylor Swift reference. I'm going to make that an annual thing. I'm going to find a way. Did you listen to that after midnight? Was, was that like your song that you brought in the new year with? I was asleep at midnight, well before midnight. Uh, if I were awake, I'd like to think I would have. I was definitely thinking about it heading into the new year. There you go. Well, I'm glad you're feeling 22. So as we kick off our first show of this new year, we're going to do a mailbag episode. Uh, We have gotten some great listener feedback as well as a few questions in. We really appreciate that. Gives us uh, an easy way to know what our audience is thinking about, what they'd like to learn more about. And so we very much appreciate all of you that have written in. We are going to kick off with a question that was written in, and they asked to be anonymous. So uh, so here, here's our first question of the year. It said, I just recently started listening to your podcast and love it. Wanted to ask you guys about credit scores. I recently checked my credit score, and it was lower than I thought it would be. I have a student loan of about $15,000, but since I graduated in 2020, I haven't had to make any payments so far. I also moved out a year ago and have never made a late payment on any of my bills or insurances. In fact, I pay all the bills early. I've never had a credit card since I've had no use for one, but I'm considering opening up a credit card account, hoping to buy a house in the next few years, and would love some advice on how to increase my credit score. How did I get a fair credit score in the first place? Lots to dig into here. Dan, what stuck out to you immediately as you read that question? If you have a lower credit score than you anticipated, I mean, the first thing that stuck out is there wasn't a lot of credit history in general or things that would have been reported to a credit agency. So it's nice that you're making timely payments to things like utilities and rent, but those aren't coming through to your credit report unless you're delinquent and missing one for a long time, in which case they might report it. So uh, while it feels good, uh, you're not getting any brownie points from the different agencies for doing so. Agreed. And similarly, even though the student loan, it sounds like it's in deferment right now where you don't have to make those payments. And so even though you're not delinquent by any means, and you're not in default on that loan, you haven't done anything wrong, but you also haven't established a payment history. And I think about 30, 35% of the credit score is simply that it's your payment history. And so even though you haven't had to make a payment, 
you also haven't necessarily proved that you're going to from a credit score perspective. Uh, And so I suspect that when you start making payments on that student loan and you start developing those months and months and months of positive payments, as you continue to do exactly what you should be doing, paying on time or paying a little bit early, you're going to see an immediate improvement because even though you haven't done anything wrong, the credit score is kind of looking at you going, we'll prove it, right? And and so I think that there's a little bit uh, of a factor there simply on the fact that you haven't made payments yet. Even though it's not hurting your score, I don't think it's helping you. And it's nothing to feel bad about. Everyone starts with nothing, with no credit history until you, you start establishing a, a track record of payments. It's worth picking up a credit card just to get started. It doesn't matter what the limit is. Get something and use it responsibly and pay it off month after month just to start increasing your credit score. The other thing that will help you is with a credit card, it, you have a higher av- available credit or, or line available to you. And the agencies look at that and say, look, this bank or financial institution is trusting you with this much money. And that's a bonus. Yeah. So for your first account, for your first credit card account, I would specifically go zero fee. Don't necessarily look for the highest point value or something like that or somebody offering a big sign-up bonus. Because the thing about most of those points cards is that people that really get into like the credit card hacking stuff, they tend to rotate them. So you might have one open for a few years, get the bonus. And then if somebody else comes out with another good one, you'll shut it down and move to the next points-driven card. Uh, where you really want to be on your first card is something that you can leave open basically forever. Uh, I've had a Bank of America card since I was like 18 or 19 years old. And, and I just got lucky that that one happens to be a no fee, really easy, uh, you know, no frills sort of credit card. And they've been trying to get me to upgrade it to their points things forever. But I love that I've got that really, really old account that's been there the entire time. And it doesn't cost me much. So I put you know, a couple charges a year on it just to make sure that it stays active. And that's it. Um, So generally, I recommend if you're going to open your first card, try and open one that's going to be really inexpensive, not frilly, and uh, something that you're going to try and keep open as long as you possibly can, because that length of credit history is really going to help you down the road. Another thing I wanted to mention is you say you looked at your credit score. Well, there are three main reporting agencies. I just wanted to put a friendly reminder out there that it's worth rotating through each of the three agencies just to make sure that they all have the right information. Not all the credit reports may have the same information and the scores will not be the same either. Recently, I was helping a family friend with a refinance of his mortgage and the difference between the lowest credit score and the highest credit score was about 100 points. And that's that's a meaningful difference. So it's worth knowing where the three stand and what your blended rate may be. Uh, different lenders will look at different agencies' scores. The final thing I'll just say is that I would just make sure your current loan is being reported accurately. Uh, And that's kind of along with what Dan just said. But sometimes, if it's in deferment, it might be reported as that you're not making payments. There there could be an error in how that's being reported to the bureaus. So you might want to just double check uh, with the current lender and say, hey, can you confirm that my loan is being reported in good standing to credit reporting bureaus because my credit score doesn't look as great as I expected it to. So uh, I think you're being super, super responsible with your your funds and your money uh, and with your borrowing decisions so far. It sounds like you are on a great track. Keep that going. 
But as you start to develop more credit mix, a little bit more history, I think you're going to see those numbers really, really boost. For those who don't know where to get your credit report, if you go to annualcreditreport.com, you can access your credit report from any of the three agencies once a year. So you can get three per year, one from each of the three main agencies for free. And during the pandemic, I believe they've actually made it so you can access it more frequently. Uh, But that's the spot to go, annualcreditreport.com. And you can pull your credit report once a year from each of the three agencies just to stay on top of what's being reported. All right. So, Dan, we're going to bundle the next two questions that we got because we've got two questions here that are kind of related to the 529 program. One is a little bit more complicated than the other. I'm going to start with Anit's question. I hope I'm saying that correctly, Anit. But thank you very much for listening to the show. He and his wife have been looking at a college savings plan or a 529 plan, and they've been debating whether or not it would be fruitful. With the uncertainty of the future, are college degrees still going to be as valuable as they are today? What are some of the alternatives to college savings programs that could bring as much, if not more, returns? I understand with some of the benefits that come along as far as tax savings and being able to grow the funds and compounding use of those funds without tax penalties, but it still gets me thinking, is it worth opening one at this point, given the uncertainty of everything? So Dan, I'm going to kick this to you since you've got a three-year-old in the house and that you're probably thinking about college savings for her as well. Do you find the value of a college education at this point being called into question? I love this question because I think it's a debate that's probably happening across a lot of households in this country. It's certainly happening internally within me. Uh, I don't know that we've had the debate in my house yet, but uh, I, I do think there's a lot to question about the future of college, both both in terms of the costs. Will will costs go down? Are we going to be oversaving? Will there be free college? And will the value of a degree be there at all in the same way that it is now? And, and the truth is, we don't know the answer to any of those questions. Uh, I do know that personally, I value education and want to be sure that there is something there to support it if and when the time comes. Uh, but I've personally hedged my bets and, and I'm splitting my savings into two different vehicles. So I do use a 529 for my daughter and, and save into that account for her, uh, hopefully to use for college one day. But a portion of my savings is going into a custodial brokerage for her where we're just investing those assets without the need to you know, to use it for education to get any benefits. Uh, brokerage accounts can be very tax-friendly if you're using them wisely. Uh, And that's our personal approach. Clearly, everyone should think about their own family and their own goals before just, you know, creating a strategy or following a strategy. But um, because I've been having the same discussions that it sounds like our listener has been having, that's the way that we've addressed it is to to split, split the funds and hedge our bets on the future. Yeah, you know, it seems to me that uh, good, bad or indifferent, there's a lot of places where the degree is still the entry point to get into the door somewhere. And it's not necessarily that you could have only learned the things that you learned in college, but as a hiring manager, it is an easy cut to make, right? If you're trying to filter from lots of resumes to just a few that are going to be qualified candidates, and you're trying to get there as fast as you can and as efficiently as you can, that's an easy way to do it. Right. And that's really what has happened is a lot of hiring managers. It's just simply that they don't have the time or they don't want to take the time to look at every candidate 
And so they're thinking, how can I get to a qualified candidate for this job as quickly as possible? And if you're saying, you know, yeah, I'm just going to put required college degree on there, maybe that's sloppy. Maybe it's actually necessary for the role. But I think we need to recognize that. And and you're seeing some program programs pop up. You're seeing Google introduce their workplace training programs, and and you're just seeing a lot more. So maybe we start to normalize that a degree is not the required entry point for a lot of jobs, and maybe high paying tech jobs can come just from people that have have just learned to code or learned whatever that that particular skill is. But I think in a lot of industries, particularly the one that we're in, Dan, right? I mean, I, I believe the CFP board requires a bachelor's degree just to issue a credential, which quite frankly, has nothing to do with financial planning, right? We could have had a degree in anything. We just have to say, yes, I have this. And then the other things that we've done to demonstrate competence. So I I still see it being required in a lot of fields, but I do understand kind of the questioning of the value. And maybe it's worth talking for a second about the tax implication of either of those accounts. So the benefit of the 529 is you get to grow your asset tax-free, and then if you use it for qualified education purposes, typically, unless you qualify for an exception somewhere, you don't have to pay taxes on the funds that are coming out to pay for that expense. So that's a nice benefit if you're going to use it to pay for college. If you do not use it for a qualified expense, you are paying a a 10% penalty on the growth and taxes. So that that's not fun, but it's not like you're being you're they're eating into your principal or anything. So you can still get some of your growth, still get your principal out and use it for anything you need. On the other side with the brokerage account, if you don't sell, you don't pay taxes, right? And if you hold for the long term, hopefully you're paying attractive rates. And now there are uh, kitty tax rules that do come into play that you should be careful about if you're an active manager. But um, over the long run, stocks are generally tax efficient. So the final thing, and we've mentioned it before on our show, in a custodial account, you do need to be aware that at the age of majority in your state, which in most states is going to be 18, that money is the full property of your children. That you no longer have the ability to claw it back. It is legally their asset. That does a couple things, right? But it's putting a lot of financial power in the hands of somebody who, when you're making those savings decisions, maybe you don't know how responsible they're going to be with that money. Now, I'm going to assume because I think Dan is a good parent and I think that he's going to teach financial responsibility to his daughter that she's going to be very responsible with that account when she ultimately takes over control of it. But you don't know that at this point. And if she decides that she wants to take a vacation on her 18th birthday and cash that thing out and go have some fun with it, that's her money. It's sounding like that's what she's going to do because she talks about Disney World every day, every single day. Get busy, Dan. Get get on down there and take her to Disney World. I'm trying to think about the dumbest thing I bought when I was 18. It's not coming to mind yet, but once I think about it, I'll share it with the world. All right. So the second question that we got that is 529 related uh, is a little bit more of an in-depth question. I'm going to try and uh, thin it down to, to just a few of the, the big pieces here, but this comes to us from Jeff. Uh, he's been a member of The Motley Fool, came to us through one of those podcasts. We certainly appreciate you uh, you listening both to, to us as well as to Chris Hill and, and the great folks over there. He's got children that are five and seven, has a well-funded 529 and a separate brokerage account. One of his kids has autism 
And that opens up the ability to use a different type of account called an ABLE plan. Between a 529 and an ABLE plan, Dan, can you take us down the the differences between those? Because you and I both actually had to look up exactly what the differences are. Yeah. So the, the short version is an ABLE plan is specifically designed for folks who meet certain criteria uh, and are, qualify for, for Social Security supplemental disability income. Uh, it allows you to use those funds not only for education, but also for additional expenses that may come up in the care and maintenance for, for these individuals. One of the added benefits of having money in an ABLE account is it allows you to accumulate up to $100,000 without it impacting the payments that you would get through Social Security. Normally, if you have over $2,000 to your name, the Social Security program counts it as a quote-unquote countable asset, and it can impair your benefits. So it's a nice way to accumulate some money to take care of your family without it impacting the payments you may be getting or Medicaid eligibility. It's definitely a more flexible account type than the 529 if you've got access to it, but I think it's a, it's a smaller percentage of folks that are going to be able to take advantage of that. Right. And, and you can transfer money from a 529 into an ABLE account, but it is restricted how much you can do that. So it's up to that $15,000 gifting limit per year is what you can get from one to the other if you find yourself in a position to do so. Um, one of the interesting nuances that I saw, I'm just going to share because it's fresh on my mind about a 529 versus an ABLE plan, is if you have money in an ABLE account and you did benefit from payments from Medicaid, the funds in that account are available to them to recoup at the, the death of the beneficiary, which would not be true in a standard 529. So in a, in a normal 529, they don't have access to those funds. Um, so there are some trade-offs between having one versus the other. Uh, but I think in general, there's a lot of good that you can have through an ABLE plan, um, at least taking a little bit more of the control in your hands with uh, using your own assets instead of having to worry about uh, protecting them elsewhere. So Jeff added another note that he teaches fifth grade and that each year the class creates a class portfolio and each child must pick a company. And he said it's easy to tell and hilarious when parents get involved, especially those in the financial industry, when you see an 11-year-old suggesting a mid-cap bank stock from the Southwest, which I find really amusing uh, when you think of kids picking those those types of companies. So uh, I appreciated the anecdote he shared there. And it sounds like the classes have actually picked some great stocks uh, going back to 2009. Uh, it looks like they, they picked a bunch of winners. So um, definitely appreciate that you're sharing that with your class, Jeff, and and that uh, that they're putting together a pretty interesting portfolio is what it sounds like. I love that he does that. When I read the question, that was my favorite part too. Just the value of a fifth grader knowing what a stock is, is just something that you're setting them up for success for life, hopefully. Um, whereas I think most people don't even encounter that until adulthood. So the last question we're going to cover today, this comes to us from our friend Ed, who has written into the show before. Ed, appreciate you continuing to listen. He's got an email from his broker suggesting that he looks at their fully paid lending program. Dan, I actually, when I first read fully paid lending program, I was thinking portfolio lending. That's not actually what this is. This is when your broker is allowed to lend your shares out to somebody else that wants to borrow them, typically for the purpose of shorting. 
This is an, a program that you and I uh, have actually had a decent amount of experience with in the you know six plus years that we were both working at Motley Fool Wealth Management. They did a lot of this. The, the broker that they use is called Interactive Brokers, and they offered this. So we used to talk about it with folks quite a bit. What was your take on fully paid lending program? Does it make sense to you? In general, I think it does make sense. So essentially, the, the shares that you hold in your account are available to short sellers. They borrow them to sell them. While they're on loan, they have to pay interest to the broker for, for that privilege to borrow. And what the broker is doing in these cases is saying, listen, we're going to make this valuable to you to, to allow us to use your shares. We will split the money we get with you as long as you're okay with this arrangement. And so for someone who has larger portfolios, this can be a nice bump in, in income for your account, uh, especially in these days where it's hard to find attractive places for income. Uh, now, it does come with some risks. So before before we get into that, the asset is still yours. The stock is still yours. So if one day I decided I wanted to sell something, the fact that it was on loan won't impact my ability to do so. It's, it's at the risk of the short seller. So uh, you can still manage your account as you normally would. But like I mentioned, there are some things to be aware of. One of the bigger gotchas in this, I think, is if you've got um, high dividend payer stocks in your portfolio, and those might be the ones that somebody wants to short. So basically, when you're receiving a dividend, there's a qualified dividend and there's a non-qualified dividend. Qualified dividends get taxed just like capital gains do at preferential rates. And most dividends that you're receiving on a long-term held stock are going to be qualified dividends. If your shares are lent out, the person that borrows the shares from you, they have to pay you the equivalent of that dividend but it is considered a payment in lieu of a dividend. So it is likely not taxed as the regular dividend would be. So if you're getting a tax preferential dividend where you're paying 15%, you know, kind of on the capital gains rate on that dividend, and then this person is now paying you a payment in lieu of dividend, and that's income, you're going to be paying a higher tax rate on dividends that you're receiving. So that would be a situation where you might want to be a little bit careful if you've got a really dividend-heavy portfolio, because it's just not necessarily going to maybe make sense, right? You're going to have to compare how much income are you receiving relative to what you're giving up in the preferential tax rates on the dividend. That's going to be really tough math to do, because on these fully paid lending programs, you don't know how much income you're going to get. It's, it's a guess as to how much income you're going to get, because it's kind of based on the demand for your individual stocks what rates they're lending them at, and then how much your shares are being borrowed, right? So there's like a bunch of moving pieces that really determine how much you ultimately get an income. And so it's kind of tough to do the plain math. Now, if you've got an IRA and the tax on the dividend doesn't make any difference to you because it's not being taxed, then I think it really eliminates that worry. But again, I, I would be careful if you've got a really dividend-heavy portfolio on whether or not you you work with one of these. It's also possible you sign up and no one wants your shares. So it can be a, a disappointing thing to get all geared up and ready for, for interest income. And then you find that, well, I guess on the good side, no one is shorting your shares. But on the bad side, this income you were hoping for isn't appearing either. So Dan, you know, I do think it's interesting because there are some brokers that don't participate in this type of thing where they don't necessarily give you the option to lend your shares but they are still lending shares to people that want to short. Are they just doing that in the background where they're not actually telling people, but they've got enough inventory somewhere in their brokerage that they're 
They're simply not sharing the revenue with the client that's ultimately lending their shares. Yeah, I believe that's true. And it's more so a competitive thing that we're starting to hear about it because brokers have started advertising this type of program as a benefit. And now other brokers need to step up and do something similar to, to show that they're competitive as well. You know, brokers make money somehow. If you're not paying transaction fees, they're not a charity organization. So you have to wonder what's happening behind these institutions that's making them money. And, uh, you know, there's there's a lot of ways that's happening. We've talked about doing that as an episode a couple times, Dan, and I just can't get around it becoming the most boring thing that you and I have ever talked about and we lose all of our listeners. But payment for order flow is really fascinating to me. Uh, and that is basically the system behind the scenes where you know if you've got a Schwab account or a Fidelity account or a Robinhood account right this is not broker specific but most of those companies are still executing trades with market makers uh, and so you see big companies like Citadel or Knight Capital and 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 there's a handful of these that that execute lots and lots of trades and they buy that order flow from the brokers they actually pay companies like Schwab and Robinhood and Fidelity to send orders their way those companies negotiate different deals and then they actually have to report that back to clients. It is, I, I completely geek out at it because I think it's really, really fascinating. But we've dug into those reports on several companies to look at who's paying what for, for the order flow. I find it fascinating. I don't think we can make a whole episode out of it, but uh, it's just to the point that that's exactly right, Dan. These are not nonprofit companies. There is still money exchanging hands, even if you're not paying a commission. They're not doing it out of the goodness of their heart. And that's not bad. But if you don't know how they're making money, you should be asking yourself, how, how is it happening? Right. Because I think of like the social media companies, right? The reason their product is free is because they're getting money from the advertisers. So really their main customer is the advertisers, and we as the users are the product. I don't think people think in those terms in terms of these brokerage accounts yet, but they should be, because there is money being made elsewhere in the system. Not not to say either of those situations are bad, but it's definitely good to go in knowing what's happening. I'm very content to to use some of these social media platforms because they're they're advantageous to me and I certainly love not paying $15 for a, a equity trade anymore, but I like to know how the people I'm doing business with are making money. 100%. It, it would make me way more comfortable just to know exactly how people are making money and then make it a clear decision. When I don't know, I get really uncomfortable personally. Well, that's it. Our first show of 2022. We've answered a few questions. We hope this has been helpful to the folks that wrote in. And if you're sitting out there thinking, I've got something I wish Ross and Dan would talk about, again, it's check your balances at outlook.com. Thank you to everybody who's tuned in, and we are hoping to have a fantastic 2022.